Durham tortures the FBI. DeSantis does Iowa and Biden discusses, but doesn't negotiate, mind you, over the debt limit. We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry. I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Rothman, and the sage of Authenticity Woods. Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsor this episode are Donors Trust and the Thank You Fellows podcast. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity, finally... We get the Durham report. We are recording on early Tuesday afternoon here. It dropped yesterday. Just devastating the FBI. I mean, these guys, they they just assumed that Trump was guilty. They took shoddy information that they should have known or didn't know that was shoddy and proceeded with this investigation anyway that ended up deranging American national life for a couple of years. What do you make of it? Uh, way back in the before times, before COVID, a little right, actually right before uh, COVID entered our lives, I wrote what I believed at the time was the longest and most in-depth profile of John Durham, in, in part because he hated doing interviews and hated being the subject of profiles. So I was like, okay. And I you know, went through it. And one of the conclusions I pointed out after looking at his very slow and methodical processes uh, in past investigations, I wrote, he will not be rushed. There is no guarantee that Durham will reach any prosecutorial decisions before the 2020 elections. Ah! And he will investigate so extensively and thoroughly that no reasonable observer, reasonable observer will be able to argue that something important was missed. That was three years, six months, and 12 mm-hmm. days ago. Um, so I, I nailed that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, I, I think it's not good for the country that the verdict comes so much later than the events and the peak of the consequence. And as much as you say, it paints this hideous portrait of the FBI, uh, basically as a bunch of partisan, seeing themselves an extension of the DNC, that their job was to stop Trump from being elected because they were convinced, well, he's got to have some sort of illicit connection to Russia. This just got to be there. Never mind, we can't find any evidence. You know, somebody once said it, there's a rumor going around. So we'd better investigate. We'd better leak that we're investigating and we better let the American people know that we're investigating all this. Um, I, I sometimes see the doom and gloom, uh, you know, outrage mongers on the right say, America's over, we're a failed state, et cetera. And that's not quite true. But, you know, things are looking bad. Not, not, quite, part, not quite true. Well, because here's the thing, because we don't have a system of account. Like, yeah, I'm glad Durham came out with this report. But now that we know this in May 2023, where, where's the system for accountability? Mm-hmm. What are the consequences for James Comey? Do we have any reason to believe that things are different under Christopher Wray other than the FBI's two-paragraph statement, trust us, we fix mm-hmm. these problems? Mm-hmm. Andrew McKay, yeah. Peter Strzok, Lisa Page. What are the consequences for any of these people? It appears to be none. I, I don't even think McCabe or is going to lose his. You know, he's still a CNN contributor, right? Well, CNN still is that, a pun- is that a punishment or a benefit? It's well compensated. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, like you know, like you know, the only person who you could say really got held accountable was Hillary Clinton and her campaign, but that's simply because she lost the election. Yeah, well, I mean, the problem though is in terms of accountability, Jim, is they didn't commit crimes, right? So they they abuse their authority in grotesque ways, but th- there's uh, there's nothing to be done. Who is that about all? That. 
Yeah, but what oh, I mean, so, you yeah, can't uh, you can't indict him for that if there's no if there's no crime. But Noah, you still have deniers. You know, and, and as you noted early on in your piece, you posted on this. You have people immediately on MSNBC saying. Either, oh, this is all old news and we knew all this, or he's ignoring all the the evidence of collusion um, just to put out this politically motivated report. Yeah, well, as Jim said, uh, with an important caveat that no reasonable person can be expected to argue with the methodical and comprehensive results that John Durham was expected to and did produce, um, perhaps there's some unreasonable people still clinging to the collusion narrative uh, on MSNBC. I find this report to be extremely valuable, mostly insofar as not just the allegations against the FBI, which are extremely disturbing, which Congress is obliged to take up. But if you followed all this in really granular detail at the time, a lot of it sounds very familiar. But I bet most normal human beings were not dedicating themselves to following the machinations of these investigations as closely as they did. And it's striking how few revelations that there have been since 2017. Um, It's really, it's a 2016 story and a 2017 story. And much of the problems with the investigation into the collusion narrative were were apparent early on in the Trump administration, as was, as I wrote on the the, uh, piece for the website, the lack of any substantiation for the claim that Russia expected to get something out of the Trump administration. We still have people banding about the notion that Trump was supposedly in hoc to Moscow and was getting something out of the deal beyond his his election, I suppose, um, from policy, in policy terms. And he didn't, didn't get anything out of it. If you're a real genuine Russia hawk, as I've spent my entire academic and then eventually uh, journalistic career being, you were thrilled with how the Trump administration approached relationship to, to Moscow, with the exception of the fact that it became unremarkably the third consecutive administration to execute a reset of relations with Moscow, Joe Biden being the fourth consecutive president to execute those relations. The Trump administration was the toughest administration in the post-Soviet period on Russia. Uh, it, it strengthened the sanctions. It imposed Magnitsky Act sanctions on Kremlin representatives, which the Obama administration declined to do. It took back uh, property, seized annexes and diplomatic property from Russia, uh, executed airstrikes on its satrap in Damascus, sanctioned Iran, which can further constrained its freedom of action abroad, provided lethal arms to uh, Ukraine, and so on and so on. There's all sort of stuff we like to see, and it didn't was incongruous with the notion that Trump was in hoc to Russia. So the, the worst conclusion you can draw from that is that because there was no collusion narrative, because there was no quid pro quo here, that Trump's obsequious, bizarre, reflexive deference to Moscow is not material in any way. It's just genuine, which is even more disturbing somehow. But that's the, his critics just can't wrap their heads around another narrative. They're married to this one in ways that are very detrimental to their credibility. Um, the FBI gets the worst marks here, not just because of this apparent effort to conspire, for lack of a better word, to affect a political outcome, but because they failed. They had this whole elaborate plan to disrupt the Trump campaign and and prevent this horror from being imposed on the American people, and they couldn't even do that right. I mean, we're, we're spared the worst of the FBI's indiscretions just by virtue of their own incompetence. 
So, Charlie, how do you think about the FBI in this instance as, as someone who has a, a healthy uh, suspicion or distrust of a federal law enforcement? Is this just the FBI being the FBI? And if you look across the sweep of its history, you'll see uh, similar episodes, most notoriously the, the suicide uh, envelope they sent to Martin Luther King with all this compromising information in the hopes that he'd kill himself? Um, or, or is this something that's really off the charts and uh, is, is not worthy of, of the FBI as, as we know it? I do not see this as being out of character for the FBI, which has had this potential, sometimes realized in its bones, since the days of J. Edgar Hoover, whose name is still on its building. That should give you some indication of the extent to which it has grappled. Yeah, I'm not a canceller, but I do not understand why that his name is still on that building. I'm just pleased, though, that the response to this news has been so healthy. We've got Nicole Wallace out at MSNBC. Jonathan Chait's resigned from New York Magazine. <laughs> David Frum says that he'll never again write for The Atlantic. Adam Schiff with his heartfelt, tearful statement on television explaining that his insinuations <laughs> were unfounded and baseless and that he'll no longer be serving in Congress. Christopher Ray having to be prevented from jumping from the top of the J. Edgar Hoover building. I want to take our listeners back a few years to the point at which those of us who were skeptical were cast as hacks and shills. And I want to read in particular a couple of excerpts from one of the best pieces that was written All about right. this, which Com was coming, by, with, coming with receipts by Jonathan Chait, who is for some reason still taken seriously in the world of politics, but should really have been laughed out of the room when he published a piece which has two titles. One is, Will Trump be meeting with his counterpart or his handler? The other is, What if Trump has been a Russian asset since 1987? Chait starts this piece by arguing, and I quote, the media has treated the notion that Russia has personally compromised the President of the United States as something close to a kook theory. <laughs> then he goes on to argue, we are in the midst, if his theory is correct, of a scandal unprecedented in American history, a subversion of the integrity of the presidency. It would mean the Cold War that Americans had long considered one has dissolved into the bizarre spectacle of Reagan's parties abetting the hijacking of American government by a former KGB agent. It would mean that when special counsel Robert Mueller closes in on the president and his inner circle, possibly beginning this summer, Trump may not merely rail on Twitter, but provoke a constitutional crisis. This sort of talk was normal for years. This sort of talk populated our cable news channels, all but one of them. This was what Nicole Wallace talked about every day. This is what Jake Tapper talked about all day. This was Rachel Maddow's Rachel show. Maddow, yeah. Mm -hmm. This was Chris Hayes' show to a slightly lesser but no less disqualifying extent. People were still doing it after Trump had left office. I can remember taking issue with a David Frum column in The Atlantic in 2021, in which he said, 
this was not a hoax, and anyone who says otherwise must be some Trump lover. As if those are the options. I think I called it the most anti-intellectual argument I'd read in a long time, that if you don't like Trump, then you have to believe all of this nonsense. I've said to you before, one of my great regrets is not having, right in the early days, 2017, when this was bubbling up, said on television what I was thinking, which is, this just has to be nonsense. And the reason I didn't do that was twofold. Firstly, I didn't know. At that point, I didn't know. At that point, I was suspicious, but not greatly so, in part because Donald Trump didn't do a great job of rebutting the accusations, did he? He sort of made it seem as if they might be true, because that's his nature. But by 2018, 19, 20, 2021, even now, this morning, some of the worst offenders are still insisting Mm -hmm. that this was true. They cannot let it go. They need this. And there have been no consequences. For those who don't follow politics, that was a joke at the beginning. Nicole Wallace is not out at MSNBC. Adam Schiff has never apologized and will not resign. That Jonathan Chait piece will be memory hold. David Frum will keep believing this, as with every other conspiracy theory he believes in. For the rest of his life, Christopher Ray will retire quietly to a nice pension. Now, of course, you can't prosecute most of those people, and you shouldn't. But they should be exposed for what they are, which is at best gullible, and at worst, well, what? At worst, negative, nefarious players in our system who misinformed the public because they didn't like the president. So, Jim, Charlie used the beginning of his, of his answer the, the, the word skeptical, those of us who are skeptical of this from all along. All along. And I think that's a, that's a good word. Uh, I assume Charlie used it advisedly because we weren't saying, no way, you know, it, it can't have happened. Let's, let's see the evidence. We're doubtful. And then, you know, the, the evidence came out. We, we were right. And all the people who are on the other side, as Charlie uh, eloquently points out, they, they've never said sorry. In many cases, they've never admitted they were wrong. And they were beholden. You know, the, the right has has been infected by various conspiracy theories the last several years. Very bad thing. But these are all very prominent, respectable uh, people, supposedly, who were hawking, especially, I put Rachel Maddow at the top of the list, were hawking conspiracy theories with, with no consequence Whatsoever, you know, there weren't any advertiser boycotts or any press uh, pushback in in the press. They just they they uh, went down this rabbit hole, and they'd never had to admit it was a rabbit hole. You know who must be feeling really embarrassed this morning, guys? The Marshal of the Supreme Court, who was, if I remember correctly, from <laughs> Louise Mensch, going to execute both Trump and Steve Bannon. It gave her no pleasure to report this. She emphasized. Um, Yeah, I remember from the very beginning thinking that whatever else the U.S. intelligence community does, it spends a lot of time, energy, and resources in watching Russia, watching Putin, watching what the Russian government is up to, certainly keeping an eye on Russian attempts to uh, steal our secrets and, and do things like that. So the idea that there was some sort of secret deal between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin or the Russian government would kind of require... CIA, the NSA, FBI counterintelligence. It require all of these people to completely fall flat on their face uh, the highest stakes situation imaginable. So the idea that all of this came together 
uh, surreptitiously in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election and that nobody in the government noticed. There were no intercepts of calls. There was no uh, indication of anybody watching the Russian government. I mean, we, we've got all their plans in Ukraine. We, we do all, we've found out all that kind of stuff, but somehow we weren't going to, uh, you know, th- this entire nefarious plot would come together and the U.S. government wouldn't get any, you know, inkling of it until, you know, well into the presidential race. Uh, never quite added up. Yeah. Oh, it never quite, you know. Yeah, no, like, why would the Russians have needed to coordinate with the Trump campaign if they were, they were hacking emails, right? I, I, you, you just hack them and yeah. you release them. Uh, trying to coordinate with the Trump campaign would add this this huge layer of, of unnecessary complexity. And I think as, as Jared Kushner said in a leaked tape when he had a uh, was having a, a lunch or a conversation with White House interns in this period, that we, were, we weren't capable of colluding with anyone in that campaign. It was so chaotic. Yeah. And so what we see here, what we see in the absolute refusal to concede, I, you know, the one person who deserves some credit here is Eric Wemple uh, rapping Rachel Maddow on the on the knuckles. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, you really don't see, you didn't see you haven't seen any giant me culpa. You saw the uh, was it Columbia Journalism report? Or, yeah, yeah, former New York know. Times reporter whose yeah. name escapes me at the moment. And and Wemple has been a, a standout on this. Yeah, but by and large, you don't see any giant report on this. And uh, Noah's old colleague Abe Greenwald had a good column last week where he basically said that like just giant lies are now how politics works in America. He puts it to the point of, it, it points to Trump as a catalyst for this, but we can all remember, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. You know, The idea of bigger and bigger lies becoming, uh, creating a narrative, creating a belief system, hands up, don't shoot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Venezuelans hacked the election. Um, it, January 6th was simultaneously an inside job, false flag by FBI folks, and it was an exact, you know, Antifa infiltrators were the cause, you know, mm-hmm. like ever bigger lie, fall, you know, lies and false narratives have become part of what gets people motivated and fired up. And I, you know, my suspicion is there are a lot of liberals and progressives if they bother to look at this or when they came out, when the Mueller report came out and said, nope, couldn't find anything. Like they couldn't concede that because then people might not be so fired up. It mm-hmm. was important to maintain the narrative, even if it wasn't true, because they're afraid if they admitted, yeah, we screwed up on this one, that people might say, oh, I'm not as motivated to vote against Trump next time. So Noah, next question to you. The Durham report means that the Russian hoax will be remembered as the the Russia hoax in uh, kind of mainstream, quote unquote, respectable opinion at some point, at least. Yes or no? Not in those terms. Though no one will allow themselves to use Donald Trump's shorthand and and allow it to become you know, just how we refer to this debacle. But yes, I think eventually, when the stages of grief are behind us, they will acknowledge the truth of this report. And listen, back to the 2017 days, I don't begrudge anybody who reserved judgment while the facts were out during open investigations in Congress and in the Justice Department. I did. Mm-hmm. That's, what prudent, that's what prudence demands. But you're allowed to form a conclusion once the evidence is in. The facts of the case are in. The investigations are over. Um, to, main, to hold on fast to this notion here distorts your credibility. And Jim brought uh, Abe's piece to the, to the table, which I'm glad he did, because it's, one of, it's a source of profound frustration for me that the people in my life are attracted. Some people in my life are attracted to conspiratorial thinking, which I think distorts your outlook and robs you of agency and is very anti-conservative. 
So I argue against it. But it's difficult when everybody around you is lying boldly, aggressively, d deliberate untruths that you could fact check within two seconds. But it's just detrimental to their, their brand. The brand now is, is to be untruthful and mendacious. And everybody seems to accept it as just the way business is done now. And it will have profoundly deleterious effects on our politics moving forward. So, Charlie, the FBI debacle will be remembered as a debacle, yes or no? It will when enough time has passed that the people who are responsible for it don't lose their jobs and Donald Trump is no longer a candidate for president of the United States. On that, though, Noah is right. This is profoundly deleterious. And I would invite people to ask themselves and to answer the question honestly, what would have happened if National Review had done this? What would have happened if Commentary had done this? What would have happened if that absurd 1987 piece that I read from had been published by you, Rich, and written by me? How do you think I would spend the rest of my time in this industry? Mm -hmm. What would it'd, it'd happen... Be the, lead, be the lead sentence in your Wikipedia entry? It would be the lead sentence in my obituary. Mm -hmm. Every time I tried to say anything, whatever the topic, every time I mentioned the Jacksonville Jaguars, every single person underneath would be tweeting at me, do you remember that time that you said this or that? And that, now I kind of wish, wish I had it to use against you every time the Jaguars <laughs> beat the Titans. This is a good example of what is meant when we complain about media bias. All of those people, they will not only keep their jobs, they will keep their reputations intact, and those who are broadly aligned with them ideologically will circle the wagons and downplay it, as if this was just some minor discrepancy or error. Well, it wasn't. This was disqualifying. So whether or not there are consequences, I think the rest of us, people who are not and have no great connection to the David Frums of the world, need to keep that in mind, that they have terrible judgment and they cannot be trusted. Yeah, and, and as Noah's alluding to, this dynamic builds on itself. So if, if you're on the right, you can easily tell yourself, well, why should I tell the truth about the 2020 election if they won't tell the truth about this, if there's no accountability on the, the other side? Jim Garrity the debacle will be remembered eventually as a debacle, yes or no? Uh, it all depends on who you're thinking is doing the remembering. Uh, the, the, on the, kind of like ma mainstream-ish opinion. I, I don't think we'll have a coherent mainstream-ish opinion uh, moving forward. I think you'll have conservatives who will remember it accurately. Uh, I think you'll have progressives who will continue to believe that Trump was a Russian agent or at minimum had some sort of unsavory secret you know, blackmail or other relationship with Vladimir Putin, and they just never found the evidence uh, that, you know, overnight Mueller turned into this doddering old man who couldn't be trusted on this. And I think independents will have this vague, yeah, what was that old thing about? You know, this, mm -hmm. this vague sense that something had been a big deal, and then all of a sudden it just disappeared from the news, and, eh, you know, why? Putin, Trump always talked about Putin a certain way. Uh, it'll just be entirely fuzzy memories for the uh, politically unaffiliated low news consumption uh, sex, uh, sector of the American public. I think eventually the, the mainstream view will be that this was an FBI debacle. With that, let's hear from our first sponsor of this episode, Donors Trust. Cancel culture doesn't just affect comedians and commentators anymore. It also affects everyday, hardworking Americans. How so? 
it derails their charitable giving. Take Jeannie's story, for example. Jeannie did her charitable giving through one of the big national giving account providers. That is until, without a clear reason, it refused to send her charitable dollars to a conservative nonprofit. She shares her story this way. I'm a conservative. I believe America is great despite her imperfections and that capitalism brings great good to society rather than government, she said. Earlier this year, I continued to see the need to support conservative organizations, so I requested another gift from my donor-advised fund, and it was rejected. She added, that's why I moved to Donors Trust. Jeannie wanted a donor-advised fund that shares her conservative principles and found that in Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund committed to limited government, personal responsibility, and free enterprise. Do you worry about cancel culture getting in the way of your charitable goals? Do you simply want a principled partner helping you support causes close to your heart? If so, consider opening a donor-advised fund with Donors Trust. For more information on how Donors Trust can help you with your charitable giving, visit www.donorstrust.org/nr to receive a free copy of their donor prospectus. That's www.donorstrust.org/nr. Please check it out. So, no, it's a tale of two cities, or at least kinda. In the Republican nomination race, we have these these national polls that are just <laughs> astonishing. Trump now topping sixty. It, uh, it it seemed incredible when he was routinely popping above fifty after the Bragg indictment. Now he's above sixty in in two or three new polls with DeSantis down in the teens, the high teens, but down in the teens. And then you have DeSantis. On Friday, scoring really notable endorsements out of Iowa, 37 uh, Iowa state legislatures. This is not the kind of uh, uh, night this popped on Friday night that a dead man walking has. And he went to Iowa on a trip that was very well received, according to all reports, then got a great break. When Donald Trump canceled a rally, supposedly because of a bad weather forecast and a tornado warning, there's some people say, no, that's not it. He just wasn't going to have much much of a crowd. I'm not sure whether that's true. But anyway, he didn't show up in Iowa. The the skies stayed uh, blue or at least were blue after a brief uh, rain shower. And DeSantis showing some flexibility goes to Des Moines close to the spot where Trump was going to have his rally and had an, an impromptu gathering at a barbecue joint. And the polling, we, we just had a new poll out of Iowa. He's behind DeSantis, but closer than he is nationally. So the question is, what do you make of it? I mean, that was a nice stroke. Um, the kind of fleet-footed uh, response to events on the fly that you expect of a strong campaign. Campaigns don't happen in uh, a room where the principals plan everything out in advance and uh, it is everything's carefully stage managed. That's the sort of thing that campaigns would like to happen, but what actually makes news and why you need to keep making news or else if you don't feed the press, the press will dine on you, um, is how you respond to opportunities as they arise. And this is one of those opportunities that arose and the Trump or the DeSantis campaign made the most of it. And it established a predicate ahead of the release of these endorsements you described. Um, significant endorsements out of Iowa, and some yet to come, perhaps, because uh, Bob Vanderplatz, who's a big evangelical in the state, is making a lot of noise about uh, DeSantis uh, in encouraging ways. 
Likewise, there's a uh, a release out of New Hampshire where uh, DeSantis received about 50 endorsements. And I think that constitutes like a third, or I'm sorry, 33% of the legislature in New Hampshire. Yeah, they got, they got a big, big legislature. There's a there. legislative district every acre. Um, but nevertheless, this is part of the an offensive, a broad offensive to get Ron DeSantis' name in the news, which he needs. He needs badly. Not just to counter narratives, but just to be a present feature of the political debate, which has so far been um, totally conceded to Donald Trump. Uh, he's not the only candidate in the race, but he might as well be. Just about all his, his rivals who present any potent force uh, in the Republican primary or have not announced yet. So uh, a nice sign of life, one that was really critical uh, given the early and perhaps premature, but nevertheless, um, uh, a narrative that is gaining steam that DeSantis's prospects are being smothered in the cradle. Uh, we all think that's premature, sure, but this is the sort of thing that can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And mm -hmm. it's good to see him counter that sort of thing. We need to see a lot more of it uh, ahead of an expected announcement in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, Charlie. So, so this creates the real possibility that DeSantis can create a, a new narrative. And there, there are always ups and downs in presidential races and new storylines. Everyone gets a, a little bored of the, the current storyline and w wants something fresh. And this creates the possibility the narrative will go from, wow, Trump is just destroying him to, hey, he's still, he's still in, in this thing and still going despite Trump's best efforts to destroy him. Yes, I don't know what's going to happen, and I range wildly between despair and limited optimism. But I do know two things. The first is that Donald Trump's attempt to strangle the DeSantis candidacy in the crib, or really in utero, it hasn't been declared yet, has failed thus far. Perhaps it begins to work next week. But what we have seen in Iowa... And what we have seen this morning in New Hampshire show that DeSantis is not regarded as moribund. And there was a particular piece I read, I think it was in the Times, could have been in Politico, that characterized some of those who have hedged or even endorsed both candidates as being driven by fear. They're scared of Donald Trump. If Donald Trump's the nominee, they worry that they'll be shunned from the party. But they're also worried that if DeSantis is stronger than he looks at the moment, that they will have damaged themselves with what would have to be regarded at that point as the party's future. Well, you don't do that if you believe that Trump is inevitable, and you don't do that if you believe that DeSantis is useless. So that strategy is not working, at least not yet. The second thing that seems to be true is that DeSantis is not a dud candidate. If you look at the videos from Iowa, he looks to me like a fairly normal politician. Perhaps I see the world differently than others. Certainly, he is no Ronald Reagan. He doesn't have a Clintonian charisma. But he's not useless. He seems to have been told or noticed that he needs to walk around and talk to people. 
His wife is a great asset in that regard as well. What he says is coherent, easy to grasp, easy to comprehend, even when he's not directly talking about Donald Trump. So I'd see neither signs that DeSantis's candidacy has been smothered before it starts, nor signs that he is just such a bad politician that he's not going to be able to operate outside of the state of Florida. What happens next is anyone's guess. So, Jim, there, there are, are, as Charlie said, signs of adjustment here. One, he's going to have a heck of a lot of money. Um, two, that should help him build uh, really robust organizations in these early states. But they, they've gotten him out there. He's flipping hamburgers. He's making an effort to stay in the room longer and interact with people in response to, to all the criticism that he doesn't look anyone in his eye and just shuffles his feet and, and stares at his shoes uh, when, when meeting people. I think it's been a big problem that he only, or a problem, maybe big exaggerates, but a problem that people don't really know anything about him personally. All his speeches are about his policy successes in Florida. They have Casey, his very winsome wife. Uh, in, in Iowa, she was she was talking about you know what he's like with the kids and things like that. So that's that's very important to to fill this out. And I think the very worst moment, well, the worst moment for him the last several months was out of his control. Right, Trump, Trump gets indicted. That that's been the inflection point. The first six months of this year. But the besides that, the worst moment was Trump stealing whatever it was, eight, 10 uh, members of the Florida delegation, congressional delegation, and getting their endorsements just because DeSantis had failed to build personal relationships with these people that you think he would have gone out of his way uh, to get to know and to cultivate. But the Iowa endorsements and the New Hampshire endorsements are signs that, yes, he's willing to put in the time and effort to win people over to him individually. Again, something you'd expect to be taken uh, for granted, but uh, he, he's not a kind of uh, a politician where it is uh, taken for granted, but he is, uh, <clears throat> this show's willing to do the work. Rich, I'm going to poo-poo the endorsements for a bit, and not just the endorsements for of Iowa state lawmakers and New Hampshire state lawmakers for DeSantis, but also the burst of House members of the House of Representatives that had endorsed Trump. I don't think there are that many endorsements that make that much of a difference in particularly in a presidential election. I don't think there are that many voters eagerly sitting at the end of their seat at the edge of their seat wondering what their state lawmaker is who their state lawmaker is going to endorse. Maybe it validates you, maybe it gets some attention to you, but I don't really think I think in Trump DeSantis we're well beyond any of that. I do note two things. I think, you know, kind of echoing what Noah had said, Liam Donovan made the observation that it's probably not a coincidence that the one really good news cycle that Ron DeSantis had happened to be the same news cycle when they got out of Florida and did something like a campaign as opposed to being stuck with dealing with the state legislature trying to get your agenda done. Ron DeSantis has perfectly legitimate and probably good reasons. Ideally, if the plan goes – if everything goes according to plan, this is the last time he works with the Florida state legislature ever because he goes on to become president and serves two terms. So, and also you want to rack up all the accomplishments you can, all the policy wins you can before you jump out on the campaign trail. And it is worth noting that uh, Donald Trump announced he was running for president before the Georgia runoffs. He did this a week after the elections in November 2022. It is now May, right? So Trump has more or less had the field to himself for now. We're, we're beyond like six months. Um, at some point in the near future, we expect that 
uh, battle to be joined for DeSantis to announce. I hope he announces he's running, running, and not just I'm announcing an exploratory committee. Seems kind of moot at this time. You've got an independent pack running ads behind you. People already have bumper stickers. Everybody thinks you're running for president, too. Just jump in. Just, you know. Um, and just that will we'll know more. What we'll really know is that first debate. That first debate, I think, is going to do a lot to decide whether Ron DeSantis is the guy who can uh, knock Trump from frontrunner status. I hope that debate goes well for DeSantis because if it doesn't go well, he will have a steep uphill climb. I don't think staying in Florida and working with the legislature until this date has, has been a mistake, but I think it has given Trump a certain advantage uh, that presumably will end soon. And I think that in the end, like, you know, DeSantis has this very strong argument. I'll give you all the pugnaciousness and all the all the stuff you'll like from Trump, but I'm not going to get distracted in the crazy stuff. And that strikes me as a complete straightforward winning argument there and that Trump is phenomenally self-destructive. But when Trump is out there doing town halls with CNN and DeSantis isn't, people are going to, Republicans are going to gravitate towards the, the, the face they see on their screen versus the one they don't. Mm -hmm. if, if I may just add one observation to that, I don't think that the endorsements matter as much as perhaps we often suggest that they do, or perhaps even that I just suggested that they do. But they do show one thing, Jim, and that is that even if Trump wins the nomination, the Republican Party writ large is remaining squishy about a couple of his attacks on DeSantis. One of those attacks is Florida is a hellhole. That hasn't gone down well with Republicans. The other is Ron DeSantis is a rhino globalist cuck, which is belied by the fact that even those politicians who are endorsing Trump are saying, and we want DeSantis for 28. Obviously, if you really believe that Trump was a, uh, that DeSantis was a rhino globalist cock, you wouldn't want him for 2028. And I think that that is instructive because it shows that even the people who prefer Trump are not bought in on his attacks on his main rival. Yeah. I think, by the way, that the, the DeSantis message could be sharpened. I worry a little bit about the electability message. I think it's true, but it, it's with with Trump polling kind of even with with Biden, it's it's harder to make that case. Plus, the electability argument never moves very conservative voters, or rarely moves very conservative voters, which are the voters that that DeSantis needs to pry from. Trump. So my worry would be he'll end up running kind of a establishment frontrunner type campaign, lavishly funded by a bunch of enthusiastic donors with a kind of a processy type message, electability, and and I can govern. Now there's a lot of truth to that, but uh, he's he's running against this you know massive this insurgent who happens to be the frontrunner and happens to have been former president of the United States, and he's going to need some issues that cut against him. He's going to have to find uh, things, ways to attack Trump from the right, and not just on past performance, but on current controversies. And this is why I, I saw a clip just this morning of DeSantis taking a shot at uh, Trump's wobbling and evasions on abortion. I think that that's a really fruitful uh, issue potentially for DeSantis, and he needs to find a couple more like that. With that... Double-barreled exit question to you, Noah. The first one may be uh, impossible to answer, but I think we forget that just the audacity of what 
DeSantis is trying to do here to, to take on Trump, not kind of do the the cute thing like, you know, Nikki Haley, where, where I'm running, maybe lightning strikes. So I'm not going to say anything negative about uh, Trump. But if he's a nominee, he'll still like me. No, you know, Trump is headhunting him from the, the beginning. There's no going to be no evading the Trump uh, buzz sauce. And, and he's running not, you know, like earlier this year when it was Trump 44 and DeSantis 37 national polls. He's running with Trump perhaps at his, his high ebb. I mean, the optimistic case is that it's, it's a high ebb and he'll come off of it. But, you know, at 60% in some national polls, as I mentioned earlier. So the exit question is, DeSantis will end up regretting running for president this cycle, yes or no? Well, if he regrets running for president this cycle, he's going to regret it for the rest of his life. There's no real coming back. Um, I think this was his shot, and I think he should have taken it. I'm glad he did take it, um, because you don't want to be the second coming of Chris Christie. If He should embrace the notion that this is Gotterdammerung that there are no survivors mm -hmm. and it's a fight for the for an existential fight for your political career to say nothing of the future of the party and that means pulling out all the so he's got 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 to go got to go even if it doesn't that work means out part, that That's means pulling out all the stops at the risk of um, running a counter to your analysis rich uh, i was dismayed to see a report in uh, semaphore this morning finding that advisors to ron DeSantis's pack were very disturbed by the PAC's uh, decision to highlight the many, many uh, untruthful and, uh, frankly, if not debatable, then certainly uh, dubious characterizations of the president's tenure uh, in office and a lot of the attacks that he made on the people around him and the, the, the on Eugene Carroll and the and Vladimir Putin and half a dozen other issues during the CNN town hall. I think you got to bury him with everything. I, I know some of those things might boomerang on you, but if you deploy enough munitions, you're going to overwhelm the defenses of your target. And that's the goal. It's to fire everything you got. Hold nothing in reserve. This is an all-out fight. There are no survivors, as I said. So holding anything back for fear of antagonizing the voters who are with Trump come hell or high water is foolish. If you're with Trump now, still, after all this, because of his Trumpisms, because of his capacity to irritate all the right people, you're not going anywhere in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we just have a different tactical view there. I think you need to rifle shot it. I think the statement that the PAC, Super PAC, put out after the town hall, you know, Trump, Trump lied about building the border and uh, attacked, uh, you know, fellow Republican gratuitously is, is more the shot you, you take after that town hall, that's going to resonate. And these are these are these people are with Trump. You know, they're open to someone else, so, some significant share of them. But I, I think uh, going going whole hog and including a lot of stuff that they're not interested in or you know pushes them towards Trump would be a tactical mistake. But <clears throat> that that's something we'll <clears throat> discuss more in the months ahead. Charlie DeSantis will eventually regret running. Yes or no? No. This is his moment. I think whatever other shortcomings Ron DeSantis may have, he is keenly aware of the moment. And he knows as well as anybody else knows that if he doesn't go this time, someone else will be waiting in the wings in 2028. The reputation that he built up during COVID will have been 
forgotten and he will regret not having run rather than regret running. Jim Garrity. So Trump is rambling like a maniac even more than usual. The incumbent president is an 80-year-old who wanders around the stage. <laughs> and DeSantis won re-election with almost 60% of the vote against a former governor. And he's supposed to wait four years for a better opportunity? Is that, that the question? So uh, No. <laughs> yeah, so I'll... I'll go with you guys. I think he won't regret it because th this was his shot and he'll look back, whatever happens, and still think that this was his shot. But his his personal reputation may never recover. It may end his career and blight his reputation for Republicans evermore. I think all that is probably likelier than not. I mean, this is a huge risk. It's a risk he should take. I agree with, with all you on that, but it is, it is a huge risk. Noah, the Second part of the double-barreled exit question, if DeSantis were the nominee, he would beat Joe Biden fairly easily in your mind, yes or no? Oh, I don't know. Probably, easily, maybe. An incumbent president is a hard target, no matter what the circumstances are. But I, th I think there absolutely is a hunger, uh, certainly, to move on from Joe Biden and the Joe Biden era and Joe Biden's policies. But a conventional Republican uh, administration and conventional Republican candidates do pretty darn well at the state level, certainly. And there seems to be an appetite for uh, that kind of uh, conventionally conservative governance that isn't necessarily table flipping uh, and, and and seeks out revenge. But yeah, I, I, I just not just because Joe Biden is a weak candidate, but because of the the suite of policies that Republicans. Uh, espouse are are not disliked by the broader electorate, and the I think if if Donald Trump were to be defeated by uh, Ron DeSantis, Ron DeSantis would be the beneficiary of a mm. well of enthusiasm and gratitude from voters across the political spectrum that would redound to his benefit. Charlie Cook, certainly Ron DeSantis can beat Joe Biden. I would never predict that it will be easy. The last 30 years or so have shown Republicans finding it fairly easy, and I'll use that word advisedly, to win Congress. Republicans have dominated at the congressional level, and fairly easy to win in the states, and really hard to win the presidency. Whatever walls are in place now favor the Democrats in the way that they favored Republicans from the late 1960s until the early 1990s. So no, it won't be easy, but I think that DeSantis will have a really good shot at it, partly because the incumbent president is unpopular and people think he's too old, partly because many of the Republican voters who have been put off by Donald Trump will come back into the fold, and partly because as a young and fresh face from the Sun Belt, he will make an attractive candidate and one that would probably do quite well with independence. So he'd have a good chance. All right. So, Jim Gary, let me try to put a slightly finer point on this, this, this question. Ron DeSantis would have a better than 50% chance of beating Joe Biden if he were the nominee. 
Yes. And just to elaborate slightly, there'd be certain factors beyond DeSantis's control, state of the economy, uh, foreign policy, national security, international scene, gas prices, October surprises, although considering early voting, it really should be September surprises. But Ron DeSantis on the campaign trail will be a phenomenally better campaigner than either Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. Yep, I'm with you. I think you'd have a better than 50% chance of winning with that. Let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, the Thinking Fellows podcast from 1517.org. Both Christianity and liberalism have significantly influenced American liberty and civil life. Jay Gresham Machen famously stated the chief trouble with liberalism, as we have been indicating, is that it is not Christianity. His book, Christianity and Liberalism, now celebrating its 100th anniversary, exposes the tension between Christian theology and progressive ideology. We invite you to join the Thinking Fellows podcast as they take a deep dive into Machen's work and discuss how these worldviews impact our lives today. The Thinking Fellows will bring their signature fun and conversational approach to important ideas in philosophy, Christian history, and apologetics. Don't miss out on this exciting new series. Subscribe to the Thinking Fellows podcast on your podcast platform of choice, perhaps the one you're listening to right now, brought to you by 1517.org and the 1517 Podcast Network. Please check it out. So, as usual, we're running a little long, so let's go exit question on our final topic. Charlie Cook, rate your level of optimism that Republicans will get meaningful concessions from President Biden on spending uh, over this debt level contention and pass it through the House from zero to 10. Zero and ah, you're still not convinced it's going to happen. 10, it's a deadlock certainty. It will happen. I think at this stage, I'm about a seven. President Whoa. Biden has, well, President Biden has proven completely unable to adapt to the fact that the House passed the bill that he said they wouldn't pass. He's still campaigning against Republicans as if they never passed a debt limit bill. He is still failing to grapple with the fact that the status quo favors the Republicans, not him, because all he has to do is sign the Republicans bill. And before it, the Democratic Senate has to pass it. I know that he doesn't want to negotiate, but from all I understand from accounts of the negotiations, he's already conceded the premise. They're now haggling over the details. So I suppose we can quibble over what you meant by meaningful cuts. But yeah, I think that I can't, Republicans I can't define, are going to win I can't this. define everything in these questions, Charlie. <laughs> I can't define everything to everyone's satisfaction. I mean, look, let's put it this way. President Biden has made it seem as if, if even one dollar is cut from this yeah. current status quo within the budget, which is at absurdly high levels, even relative to pre-COVID, that everyone in America will die in a pool of lava. So <laughs> on his own terms, yes, there are going to be meaningful cuts in this. All right, Jim. So as I sh sh say in baseball, we got a crooked number on the board of seven. Big, big hefty seven from Charlie. I think Charlie's assessment is largely correct. I, I would come in at about a six. I think what has me worried now is I, that, you know, not only is Biden acting like Republicans haven't put any offer on the table, uh, we're recording this mid-May. Allegedly, June 1st is the day the world explodes and the economic consequences will be dire, and which means they've got about 14, 15 days. And Biden is, as of this recording, still going to Asia and Australia for a week. 
Now, can he negotiate on the plane? Yes. Although we all know how tired uh, Biden gets on these long foreign trips. He said last week that if he felt like he needed to, he would cancel the trip. So possibility one is that he knows he's going to you know, con- concede at the last second and he'll say, I had to make these concessions and everything will turn out fine. But I also wonder if somebody's whispering in Biden's ear that at the last second Republicans will give him a clean increase. And so I have a slight fear of like we get to the end of May and the clock is ticking down and Biden just sits there waiting for the phone to ring with McCarthy offering a complete surrender and it never comes. So I kind of have that nagging feeling of wondering, because we never know just what's going on in Biden's mind or if anything's going on in Biden's mind. Um, I'm not 100% sure this ends with the happy ending and the aversion of the uh, hitting the debt ceiling that we all kind of expected to. All right. So we've, we ticked down a little bit. No, the average has gone down from a, a 7 to a 6.5, but we've got a 7 and a 6. I'm going to boost it a little bit. I'm going to echo Charlie's 7. Um, meaningful cuts I don't think are on the table in my terms, but we might all be retroactively conditioned to believing they were meaningful, uh, whatever they happen to be. We got uh, this little piece of news out of Politico last night, which I found very entertaining. Uh, quote uh, from a person close to the White House, who spoke with condition of anonymity to describe the deliberations, said that, quote, Biden was always going to have to compromise on spending once Republicans won control of the House. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> well, why did you bother to condition every progressive who is now up in arms over the prospect of a, of a 2011 redux with spending cuts on the table in exchange for a debt limit? Why did you mislead them? Why did you feed into this deluded narrative that the Super Committee and the Simpson-Bowles Commission and all that rigmarole in the beginning of the last decade was an unambiguous Republican victory. Nobody believed that on the right. All you had to do was talk to one of them. It was, uh, it was a narrative that was constructed to soothe Democratic egos and progressive egos and, and craft a set of conditions that would be favorable to Democrats, bore, bore no resemblance to reality, and it was reckless and irresponsible for the, for the White House to indulge in this nonsense. And now they're saying, well, now we have a a negotiating strategy from the White House. Now they want to close some loopholes so they can get some tax increases, which is a non-starter among Republicans. So they're starting on the back foot. Republicans have all the momentum behind them, have since they passed their own debt limit deal. Some of the the, uh, OMB director, I think, was pretending as though this never even happened, as Charlie said. They're, They're having a lot of trouble shifting their tact here. And it all suggests that Republicans are going to get more of what they want than Democrats did. And why? Because Republicans had a strategy and Democrats didn't. They rejected the very notion of having a strategy as some sort of a concession. Yeah, a concession to reality. So I think it's gone incredibly well, much, much better than anyone could have expected. But I'm just going to go a little lower to a five, just because when push comes to shove, I think it's going to get really difficult on Kevin McCarthy, because as I've said before, it just seems unlikely whatever concessions they get from the president will be enough to appease almost the entirety of the Republican caucus, which is what McCarthy needs to pass something. And if he gets uh, uh, some sort of deal from from the White House and then then can't pass it with Republican votes and has to go to Democrats, then, then that's when it gets uh, potentially quite ugly. But so far, it's been um, he, he's done an incredible job with that. Let me do a quick plug for Enterplus Digital Subscription Service at nationalreview.com. Let me just cut to the chase. It is a really important way to support our valuable journalism. We need people to pay for what they read. 
at nationalreview.com. So if you're not already a member, please consider joining tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR+. We have great first-time deals running at any given moment. So please check it out and sign up today, tomorrow, or the day after. With that, Jim, let's hit a few other things before we go. You had a, a Mother's Day that included a visit to a art museum in Washington. Yes, it is the Freer Gallery of Art, which, along with the Arthur Sackler Gallery, form the National Museum of Asian Art in the United States. It's right on the mall, right next to the uh, Big Red Castle of the Smithsonian. Uh, my wife's favorite museum down in Washington. And I, also, I noticed, like, it's, pro it's for, I didn't realize it was the oldest museum on the mall in Washington. Um, but also, like, it's never crowded. I don't know if that says something about the popularity of Asian art in America or just means that the big tour groups don't come through there or that you're less likely. But they've got, you know, obviously all over Asia, all different time periods of history, uh, really enjoyable. And just, again, you know, we just went out and had a, you know, a fantastic day at the museum, uh, paid nothing because it's Smithsonian. Um, and, you know, there were, you know, never more than like a half dozen people in each room in the galleries. It, it's just kind of, you know. Uh, an unusual experience amongst the Smithsonian's or if you're used to going to air and space and seeing a bazillion tourists all around you and stuff like that. And we had a nice lunch and also maybe a strange indicator of the very gradual and slow return of downtown D.C. to life. This marks the second weekend in a row we've been in downtown D.C., which is clearly the first time since before the pandemic. So, Noah, the debt limit showdown is going better than expected, but your pool opening is not. No. Um, listeners might remember where I a couple of weeks ago, I said how excited I was to open up the pool because I was remembering the glory days of summer, late summer and early fall, uh, when you really get the most advantage of it. What I forgot is what happens when you open the thing and find out what didn't survive the winter, because there's always something, always something. And as we speak, I'm looking at a repair guy who's right now replacing a, um, not the most expensive, but not a cheap part, uh, and you can't run the filter without it. So and if you no pools, you open the thing up and expose it to sunlight. You want to get that filter running real quick because it becomes a swamp in short order. And it's been <laughs> just exposed to the sunlight for the better part of a week now. And it's not looking good. Mm. All right. Well, good luck with that, Charlie. <laughs> Thanks. So my kids have taken to playing baseball outside in our front yard. And I have taken to going and playing with them. And I, yesterday evening got a lesson in the manner in which men instinctively uh, from birth understand how to argue with the referee or in this case the umpire because my seven-year-old was out i put my foot on the base before he got to the base but he would not have it absolutely not shaking his head, shaking his finger. But here's the best part. He started doing what every sports fan does and every man does, which is to take shots at me. He said, well, I'm seven years old. You're 38. I can see better than you. He said, you sometimes wear glasses. He means sunglasses. I don't wear glasses. It was just so funny. He has not got this from me. At least I don't think he's got it from me. Maybe people could show me footage of myself watching sport. He just seemed somehow to know how to join the fraternity of indignant sports fans when they think that a call has been messed up. Yeah, tra trash talk, part of human nature. Yeah. So I saw the other night a speech that uh, Governor Brian 
Kemp gave to a Republican gathering. He is just so good. He is so, so good. And th this whole speech is basically an enormous uh, troll of, of Donald Trump and making the case why it would be a mistake to, to nominate Trump without mentioning him by name. And I think that's a, that's a problem. A lot of people who have criticism of Donald Trump will not actually come out and say, oh, I'm talking about uh, Donald Trump. But he is, uh, he, he's absolutely in, in the right place and an, an advocate for a conservative and an exemplar of a conservatism that can win. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? Uh, you know, a lot of competition. I'm going to go with our house editorial on the shoddy Russia investigation. And by the way, can I just observe what an absolute joy it is to have new file photos of John Durham? Because he's so famously <laughs> camera shy. One, right? You all yeah. know that there were two pictures of him. They went with every single article in every media organization, every media report you ever saw at this. Um, it is fiery, but fact-based fair-minded. Uh, it speaks for all of us, but I, I think, you know, listeners have a sense of who's the person who's going to weigh in very heavily on a subject like this. Um, and it just is, it's, it says what needs to be said. And, you know, my, my viewpoint in our first segment was partially uh, driven by that conclusion of that last line is a methodical evidence-driven report that provides a long overdue public accounting, just not enough accountability. Now, Rothman, what's your pick? Uh, Jeff, Blehar's Our Cultural Obsession with Racism Goes Viral, something I saw also in Axios yesterday, which uh, is a virtual reality uh, video game that allows individuals to transport To, to be themselves discriminated against. To, to, to experience troglodytic mid-20th century racism for themselves. It's, an, it's a yet another example and a very funny one of how the demand for Jim Crow-style racism in our culture just profoundly outstrips the yeah, supply. No doubt. Charlie, what's your pick? My pick is by Noah Rothman. He wrote oh, it you. this morning, I imagine, somewhat quickly. And it is about the Mueller probe and about how people should have known, right from the beginning, uh, that this at the very least warranted skepticism because the case was weak from the get-go. I won't re-rehearse the case. Noah made it on this podcast earlier, but it's an excellent roundup of all of the problems with this. And it shows, once again, why anyone who is still selling this in 2023 needs their head looking at. So my pick is a piece from the new print edition of NR, Why the Chips Act Will Fail by Jordan McGillis and Clay Robinson, making the case with a special focus on Arizona, which is kind of all in on this, on why the semiconductor subsidies in the Chips Act will not have the hoped for outcome, despite the fact that uh, they, they sound good or at least sounded good to a bipartisan majority of the United States Congress. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count of this game without the express written permission of National Review Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Donors Trust and the Thinking Fellows podcast. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.